Arthur Pink, Spiritual Growth, and I think it's number three. Pretty sure. Might be four, but I think it's three. And we're on the chapter on its nature, the nature of spiritual growth, Roman numeral number two. All sound teaching, like the safest method of reasoning, proceeds from the general to the particular. And therefore we shall attempt to show the principles from which spiritual growth issues and the main lines along which Christian progress advances. Before we enter into a detailed analysis of the same, God first gave Israel his law, and then because his commandment is exceedingly broad, Psalm 119, 96, supplied application to the prophets and still more specific explication of its contents through Christ and his apostles. Spiritual growth is the development of spiritual life, and spiritual life is communicated to a sinner at the new birth. <clears throat> so the more clearly we are enabled to understand the nature of regeneration, the better prepared we, are, we shall be able to perceive the character of spiritual growth. Admittedly, regeneration is profoundly mysterious, but there are at least two things which afford us help thereon. The fact that it is a renewing, Titus 3.5, and that it is a real and radical, though not a complete or final, reversal of what happened to us at the fall. The old creation gives us some idea of the new creation, and the order in which the former was wrecked prepares us to grasp the order in which the latter is affected. Natural man is a composite being made up of spirit and soul and body. The spirit seems to be the highest part. Actually, it's spirit and soul are synonymous here. I hope he's not a tri-nature. Tri the spirit seems to be the highest part of his nature, being that which capacitates for God consciousness of the knowledge of God, he being spirit, John 4.24. The soul or ego, see, he's, got, he's holding here a... Uh, there's two theories among Christians. One is that men consist of soul and spirit. I mean, excuse me, soul and body. And the mind is simply synonymous with soul, essentially. Although the word soul can be used to include the whole human being, including the body. Uh, so he's, he's a try. He's, he's holding to a, a, a three position instead of a two position. That soul and spirit, there's a difference. And there's really not. But anyway, just letting you know that. The soul or ego appears to be that which expressed through self through the body constitutes what is termed our personality. And is the seat of self-consciousness and by it man is communion with his fellows. The body or physical organism is that which provides the soul with a habitation in this world, and it is the seat of self-consciousness, being that which through man has contact with material things. <clears throat> the order of scripture is spirit and soul and body. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 But man with this, it, but I could demonstrate, if I took the time, I could demonstrate that spirit and soul are used interchangeably several times in scripture. But man with his customary perversity invariably reverses it and speaks of body and soul and spirit. How that reveals what man has degenerated into, the body, which he can see and feel, which occupies most of his concern, and comes first in his consideration and estimation. His soul receives little thought and still less care, and as to his spirit, he is unaware that he even has any. Genesis one twenty six, and God said, let us make man after our image and after our likeness. God is triune. There are three persons in one, an indivisible essence. And it was in the image of the triune God that man was made, as the pearl pronouns plainly connote. Thus man was made a triune creature. Okay, that's wrong. That's just simply wrong. <laughs> the spirit and the soul <clears throat> is the same thing. Mind, spirit, heart, they're all the same. His spirit, which is the intellectual principle and highest part, was capacitated for communion with God and was designed to regulate by its wisdom the soul in which resides the emotional nature or the affections. 
The soul in man was to regulate the body as it received through the physical senses information of the external world. But at the fall, man reversed the order of this creation, making a god of his belly. He henceforth became enslaved to the lower world. And the soul, instead of directing the physical mechanism, became to a large extent the lacquery of his senses and demands. Communion with God being severed, the spirit no longer functioned according to its distinctive nature, and though not extinguished, was dragged down to the level of the soul. What is it pointed out should be clear to the reader by pondering it in the light of Genesis 3. <clears throat> and just a comment, you'll notice his, his tripart view of man. <laughs> he doesn't demonstrate it scripturally, he just assumes it. In assailing Eve, Satan made his attack upon her spirit. <clears throat> seems to me he was speaking to her mind, her heart, her soul, which includes, which is also the spirit. The principle which receives from God, for he first called into question the divine prohibition, verse 2, and then replying to her objection, assured her, you shall not surely die, and added as an inducement, in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as God's only good and evil, verses 4 and 5, thereby seeking to weaken her faith and flatter her ambition by promising greater wisdom. Hearkening to his lies, the woman was deceived, 1 Timothy 2.14. Her judgment became clouded through doubting God's threat, and once the light of God in her spirit was lost, all was lost. Her affections became corrupted so that she now desired or lusted after the forbidden fruit. Not by the prompting of her spirit, but by the solicitation of her physical senses. Now, that's just nonsense. That's just not true. The idea that the spirit can be different than the mind or will is just the heart is a unified whole. The mind is a unified whole. <clears throat> and her will became depraved so that she took thereof. Now, from the experimental side of things, regeneration in the initial work of God is a reversing of the effects of the fall. For its favored, for its favored subject is then renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. You know, notice it doesn't say renewed in the spirit and the mind. It's renewed in the image of him in the knowledge. That is to say, spiritual perception is restored to him, so that he now has again what was lost in Adam, a vital, powerful, direct knowledge of God. <clears throat> in consequence of this, he is brought back again into communion with God, restored to a conscious fellowship with him. One aspect of this mysterious but blessed work is brought before us in Hebrews 4.12, where you're told, the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-arged sword, perversing, uh, piercing even to the descender of soul and spirit. We understand that last clause to signify the regenerated person's spirit is now freed from its immersion into the soul and is raised to its own spiritual level. Once again, that's nonsense. I should have read this before. Um, this is just simply, he's getting a bunch of things out of here that are wrong. <clears throat> we understand that last clause to signify the regenerated person's spirit is now freed from its immersion into the soul and is raised to a superior level, being placed and rapport brought into harmony with God himself. That's simply, it's impossible to raise your spirit above your soul for the, the same thing. Thus Paul declares, I serve God with my spirit, Romans 1, 9, not soul, and my spirit prayeth, 1 Corinthians 14, 14, in distinction from purified your soul's affections and obeying the truth. The word soul, is 1 Peter 1, 22, is synonymous with your mind or heart. So to make these exegetical distinctions is his presupposition. Though the above may sound recondite, 
being new to our readers, somewhat difficult to grasp, it should, we think, be more or less clear that in order for us to answer to what God has wrought in us, in order to live as becometh Christians, the body should take second place to the soul and be ruled thereby. And the soul, in turn, should be subordinated to the spirit, which is to be enlightened and controlled by God. No, your mind and soul is controlled and enlightened by God simultaneously for the same thing. Unless the body be made subservient to the soul, man lives his life on the same level as the animals. And unless the Christian's affections and emotions be regulated by wisdom from the spirit, he lives on the same plane as the unregenerate. Okay, once again, heart, emotions, will, intellect, they're all part of the soul. They're all part of the heart. They're all part of the spirit. Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That means make the things of the spirit your paramount concern, and your lower interests will be automatically subverted, subvert, subserved. If the mind or spirit be stayed on God, the soul will enjoy perfect peace, and the soul at rest will be beneficial on the body. Thus in proportion, as our lives accord with what took place in us at the new birth, will our spiritual growth will be our spiritual growth and prosperity. Nothing but knowledge of God can satisfy the spirit of man, as not but his love can contend his soul, content his soul. He's making this totally artificial uh, bifurcation between soul and spirit and emotions, will, and so forth, which is just simply imposed on the scripture. It doesn't make any sense at all. Um, love God with all, your, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Uh, that's a Hebraistic way of speaking of the exact same thing. That's Deuteronomy 6, by the way, which Christ repeats in the Gospels. That's just a Hebraistic speak of dry, describing the same thing. Man's supreme happiness consists in the exercise of his noblest parts and faculties on their proper objects. And the more excellent those objects be, the more real and lasting pleasure do they give us in the knowledge and love of them. Thus it is, thus it is that, when God has designs of mercy toward an individual, he begins by shining upon his understanding and attracting his heart unto himself. And that work of grace proceeds that individual is enabled to see something of the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews 3.13. How it has deluded him into vainly imagining that things of time and sense could afford him satisfaction until he discovers that, to use the figurative language of the prophet, he has spent his money for that which is not bread and labor for that which is satisfieth not. Isaiah 55, 2. Therefore goes, does God say to him, Hearken unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Until God becomes our portion, the soul is left without an, with an aching void. Here, then, is what occurs at regeneration. God hath given us an understanding that we may know what is true, 1 John 5.20. And this he does by quickening the spirit in us, or soul, or heart. And again we read, For God, who in connection with the first creation, Genesis 1.3, commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath in his work of the new creation shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.6. Okay, and I've done studies on the word heart in Hebrew and so forth. It, it means the whole man. Thus, Christian progress must consist in our advancing in a personal experimental knowledge of God. And consequently, when the apostle prayed for the spiritual growth of the Colossians, he made the request that they might be increased in the knowledge of God. 110. Simultaneously, with this communication of a supernatural knowledge of himself, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5. 5. And therefore, spiritual growth consists in a deeper apprehension and full enjoyment of the love of that love with a more complete response thereunto. And hence, when making requests of the same on behalf of the Ephesians, Paul prayed that he might they might know, this is 319, 
know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. And that knowledge takes place in what? Your mind, or your heart, or your spirit. It is not our immediate design to give a full a description of our present light of it's on the precise nature of regeneration, but only to point out uh, those of its principal elements, which the better enables us to grasp what spiritual growth consists. And I'm hoping he'll begin to discuss it. it, it regeneration in, in, involves renovation and purification. We'll therefore mention but one of the other features of the new birth, that which is at least inseparable adjunct to it, namely the impartation of faith. Nor that we now attempt to define what faith is, sufficient for the moment to acknowledge that it is a blessed gift of God, Ephesians 2.8, in no wise originating the exercise of the human will, but communicated by the operation of God, Colossians 2.12. And therefore, it is a supernatural principle active in its favored, in its favored recipient, bringing forth fruit after its own kind, and therefore experiencing its divine source. It is by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5.7, the Christian walks, as said the Apostle. This is from Galatians 2.20. The life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, he being its object. He loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians 2.20. This is which distinguishes all the regenerate from the unregenerate, for the latter are children in whom is no faith. Deuteronomy 32.20, see 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. So in, in, in regeneration, you renovate, your heart is renovated and also cleansed or purified by the Holy Spirit. The whole man is. The whole spirit and soul, everything is purified by the Holy Spirit. And with this comes effectual calling. That is the interior call where you, ought, where you are enabled to love Christ, enabled to love the Bible, enabled to love God. So you have a change of mind. So you have the gift of repentance, effectual calling, and the gift of faith, which is believing, having faith, laying hold of Christ by faith. The Christian life begins by the exercise of a God-given faith, namely an act whereby we receive Christ as our own personal Savior. John 1.12 We are justified by, by faith, and by Christ have access by faith into this grace that is accepted by, into God's favor wherein we stand, Romans 5, 1 and 2. We are sanctified by faith, Acts 26, 18, that is, made actual participants of the ineffable purity of Christ. Through the Spirit we wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, Galatians 5, 5, C, 2 Timothy 4, 8. It is by the shield of faith and that alone that we are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, Ephesians 6, 12. It is through faith and patience that we inherit the promises, Hebrews 6, 12. It is by faith, that the Old Testament saints obtained a good report, Hebrews 11.3, and wrought such wonders as that the remainder of that chapter demonstrates. It is by faith we successfully resist the devil, 1 Peter 5.9, and overcome the world, 1 John 5.4, from all of which it is very evident that the measure of our Christian progress will all be largely determined by the extent to which this principle be kept healthy and remains operating in us. To sum up what has been pointed out above, regeneration is both a renewing and a new creation. As a renewing, it is a continual process. As 2 Corinthians 4.16 clearly shows, this aspect of it is as a partial reversal of and recovery from what happened to us at the fall. It is a divine quickening which necessarily presupposes an entity or fa faculty already existing, though in need of being made alive or revived. This renewing is in the uh, of the inner man which includes both spirit and soul, or the mind and heart. Yay, finally. It is an actual and radical act, followed 
by a repeated but imperceivable process whereby the nobler or, or immaterial parts of our beings are elevated or refined. Okay, that, that's just simply wrong. <laughs> that's, that's Neoplatonism. It's not a refining of our nobler elements. It is a purifying of our nobler. It's a purifying of those elements, causing them to go in a Godward direction. See, I haven't seen anything about purification in his definition of regeneration yet, and that's that's a defect. Now, maybe he'll get to it. But it's a purifying of the soul, it's a purifying of the heart, it's a purifying of the mind by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, which causes you to go in a Godward direction. It's not an ele If you want to call that an elevation of your nobler elements, fine, but that... that that sounds Neoplatonic. This does not mean that our, the, fl the flesh or evil principle in us undergoes any improvement, but that our faculties are spiritualized, and thus the spiritual growth will consist of the mind being more and more engaged with divine objects, the affections being increasingly set upon those things above, the conscience becoming more tender, and the human will being made more amenable to the divine, and thereby the inner man more and more conformed to the holy image of Christ. Regeneration is something more than a renewing or quickening of parts and faculties already in existence. It is also a new creation and bringing into existence something which did not exist before. The actual bestowment of something to the sinner in addition to all that he had as a natural man. That something is variously designated in scripture and by theologians according to the different relations and aspects. It is termed life, 1 John 5.12. Yea, life more abundantly, John 10.10, 10, that unfallen Adam enjoyed. It is named spirit because being born of the spirit, John 3, 6, and therefore it is to be distinguished from our natural spirit. And the spirit of power and of love and of sound mind, 2 Timothy 1, 7. It is called the earnest of the spirit, 2 Corinthians 1, 22, being a token or first fruits of that which is ours when glorified, and grace, Ephesians 4, 7, is an inward principle. Theologians designate it the new nature, and many allude to it under the composite term of Christian graces which is warranted by John 1.16, and is probably meant the easiest for us to comprehend. Considered thus, spiritual growth may be said to be the development of our graces, the strengthening of faith, the enlargement of hope, the increasing of love, the abounding of peace and joy. See 2 Peter 1.3 and carefully note verses 5-8. to 8. Thus far, we have been dealing almost entirely upon the internal aspect of our theme, so now we will quote one verse which directs attention to the external side. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has showed beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Here's the response which we are required to make unto the new birth. God's purpose in our new creation or regeneration is that we should walk in good works, that we may make manifest the spiritual root, which is then implanted by bearing spiritual fruit. Such was the design of Christ in us, and in dying for us, Two, Titus 2.14, and here's that purification aspect which he hasn't really got into. Purify unto himself a particular people zealous of good works. From which it plainly follows that the more zealous we are of good works and the more steadfastly we walk in them, the more do we rightly answer to, that, to what God has wrought in us. Now the performance of our daily duties are so many good works, if they be done from faith's obedience to God's requirements with an eye to his approbation and glory. Hence, the more faithfully and conscientiously we discharge our obligations toward God and, and toward our fellows, the more true Christian progress we are making. And I would, I would add, the more we are living consistently in advancing upon the interior uh, 
purification, the principle of purification that was implanted in the soul at regeneration. And read my booklet on, I have a whole booklet on regeneration. All that has been before us, above, receives simplification when it is viewed from the light of conversion and its proper sequel. Regeneration is entirely the work of God wherein we are passive. But conversion is an act of ours, the one being the effect and consequence of the other. The word conversion means to turn around. It is a right about face. <clears throat> it is a turning from the world unto God, from Satan unto Christ, from sin unto holiness, from being absorbed with the things of time unto devotion to our eternal interests. At regeneration, we receive a supernatural of God, knowledge of God, and as a consequence, in his light, we see ourselves as depraved, lost, and undone. At regeneration, we receive a nature which is created in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 2.24. And, as a consequence, we now hate all unrighteousness and sin. At regeneration, we are given an understanding that we might know him that is true, 1 John 5.20. And our response is to yield ourselves unto his dominion and trust in his atoning blood. At regeneration, we receive divine grace as an indwelling principle. And the effect is to make us willing to deny ourselves, take up the cross daily, and follow Christ. The proper sequel to such a conversion is that we steadfastly adhere to the surrender we then made of ourselves unto the Lord Jesus, and the more we do so, the more we do so, such will be our spiritual progress. And that's all very good. Roman numeral number three. We have sought to show the principles from which spiritual growth, and by the way, just to note, uh, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a symbol of regeneration, a sign and symbol. And the removing of the, the filth of the flesh, it's called. So that symbolizes what? Purification. In the New Testament, baptism is symbolized, baptism symbolizes regeneration instead of circumcision. What is the water, washing of water symbolized? Purification. So that renewing in righteousness and holiness, which Paul speaks about, talks about the purific purificatory aspect of regeneration. Roman number three. We sought to show the principles from which spiritual growth issues in the main lines along which the Christian progress advances, pointing out that spiritual growth is the development of the spiritual life communicated at regeneration. Now we shall look at the particular, seeking to set out in some detail of what, of what that development actually consists. Number one, spiritual growth consists in an increase of spiritual knowledge. God works in us as rational creatures according to our intelligent nature, so that nothing is wrought in us unless knowledge paves the way. We cannot speak of language unless we have some understanding of the same. We cannot do work with an impediment or machine, uh, nor play on a musical instrument until we have knowledge of that. The same obtains in connection with spiritual things. We cannot worship intelligently or acceptably an unknown God. We must first, uh, we must first reveal himself, he must first reveal himself and be known by us, for he could not. we could not love or trust one with whom we had no acquaintance. Therefore, uh, does God's word declare, Psalm 9.10, They that know thy name will put their trust in thee. It cannot be otherwise. Once God is revealed to us as a living reality, the heart at once confides itself to him as being absolutely worthy of his, its fullness, reliance, and dependence. It is spiritual ignorance of God which lies at the foundation of all our distrust of him and therefore of all our doubts and fears. Acquaint, and this is Job twenty-two twenty-one. acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. And this is excellent because there's an intellectual 
stream within Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement, and much of evangelicalism, where doctrine, knowledge, learning, uh, intellectual advancement, these things are all looked down upon as unnecessary and perhaps even worldly. And that's just nonsense. Now, it's bad if you know something and don't act upon that. That's bad. We must be doers of the word, not mere hearers only. But you need to know in order to have a proper object of faith. And it's a proper object of faith that is going to help you be more holy over time. And of course, you have to have that to begin with, just to know you have to believe in Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures, not the Christ of your own imagination. The Christian life begins in knowledge, for the new man is renewed in knowledge. Colossians 3.10. John 7.3, this is life eternal, that they may know thee and the, the, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And of course, we have to understand that the word know in Hebrew often has an additional element of both know and love. Not simply an intellectual knowledge, but a knowledge coupled with love. There's been much difference of opinion among commentators as to the scope of these words. When we wrote therein many years ago, we adopted the view of the majority of Christian writers, name, namely a declaration of the way and means by which eternal life is obtained. Just as the words that follow, this is the condemnation in John 3.19, do not define the character of that condemnation, but rather tell us the cause of it. While we still believe in the legitimacy and soundness of the interpretation we gave formerly, yet a more nature, a more mature reflection would not restrict the meaning of John 73 to that explanation, but would also understand it to signify that eternal life, of which we now have, but the promise and earnest or everlasting bliss and glory will consist of an ever-increasing knowledge of the triune God as revealed in the person of the mediator. And just as a side note, he'll probably get to this, but that's why we're described when we first become Christian as babies, as little babies. Desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, First Peter. This knowledge does not consist in theological thoughts or metaphysical speculations about the Godhead, but in such a spiritual understanding of him that causes us to believe in the Lord. See, here again, he's making a false distinction. Um, yes, metaphysical speculations about the Godhead are certainly wrong, but theological thoughts are absolutely necessary, the priority of the intellect. The question is, do you believe them and do you act upon them? Um, he, so he's, he's got a false antithesis there. Of him causes us to believe in the Lord God, to cast our souls upon him, and, and center in him as our everlasting per portion. The renewed understanding is raised up and enlightened with a supernatural life, so that what we know of the Lord is by intuitive knowledge, which the Holy Spirit is most graciously pleased to give. Why, why is it intuitive knowledge? No, you're taught about God in the scriptures. It's a real knowledge. It's not simply intuitive. Um, like having a good golf swing or something. It's real knowledge. So I don't know the distinction he's trying to make here. Hence, believers are said to be called out of darkness into marvelous light. And Paul says, you are sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. As the knowledge of the Father, Son, and Spirit is reflected upon the renewed nine in the person of Christ, so it is received into the heart. Uh, that is by S.E. Pierce. And uh, he's once again making a distinction between heart and mind, which is just simply false. If you believe it in the heart, you believe it in the mind. If you really believe it in the mind, yeah, you do believe it in the heart. The spiritual apprehension of God is such as no outward means 
can of themselves convey. No, not even the reading of the word or hearing of it preached. In addition thereto, God by his own light and power conveys to the human spirit such an effectual discovery of himself as radically affects the understanding, conscience, affections, and will, reforming the life. As the Christian life begins in spiritual knowledge, so it is increased thereby. 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in grace and in the knowledge of the, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Upon which we quote again from the excellent Pierce. Quote, I can see that by grace, here all those faculties, grace, habits, dispositions, which were wrought in us by the Holy Spirit, are to be understood. And to have our spiritual faculties, grace, habits, and dispositions exercised distinctively and supernaturally on their proper objects and subjects is to grow in grace. What follows in the text is explanatory and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the object in which all our graces are to be exercised. He is the life of all our graces. Therefore, growing into a greater knowledge of him and the Father's love in him is to grow in grace. For thereby all of our graces are quickened, strengthened, exercised, and drawn forth to the praise of God. End of quote. While we do not think that that exhausts the meaning of 2 Peter 3.18, yet such an interpretation is born out of the second verse of the epistle. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Not by the knowledge of God alone, nor of Jesus alone, but of God in Christ, the mediator, which is also the force of John 17.3. In other words, you got to know it all. If you're not believing in the Trinity and you're not believing in the work of Christ, you don't have a true knowledge of God the Father. Now, one of the ways by which we may ascertain the spiritual growth consists of is by attending to the recorded prayers of the apostles and noting what is for which they made request. Being very eminent themselves in grace and holiness, it was their earnest desire that the churches, in particular individuals, to whom their epistles were addressed, might increase and greatly flourish in those divine bestowments. Accordingly, in his prayer for the Ephesians, we find Paul petitioning that the Father of glory would give unto them, quote, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of their understanding might be enlightened, that they might know what is the hope of his calling, verses 17 and 18. It should be obvious that in asking for such favors for those saints, there are no implications that they were entirely devoid of them or that he sought the initial bestowment of them any more than John 20, verse 31, signifies the fourth gospel was addressed to unbelievers. 116 proves otherwise, or that the first epistle was sent to Christians lacking in assurance. Neither does 1 John 5.13 connote that ye may have a clearer and fuller knowledge that eternal life is yours. No. In making those petitions on behalf of the Ephesian saints, Paul requested that a larger degree of heavenly light might be furnished unto them, under their minds. That they might have a more spiritual apprehension of the one with whom they have to do. Of his wondrous perfections according to the revelations he has made in his word, of himself in his word and of his very relationships to them. It was that they might discern the wonders of his grace and power proper, prop, and power toward in and for them. It was that they might have an enlarged conception and perception of their vivification when they were in a state of death and sin. In like manner, he prayed for the love of the Ephesian saints might, quote, abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. One nine. As to the Colossians, that they might be increased in the knowledge of God, 110, which is to be taken in its fullest sense, increasing in the knowledge of God and in the manifestation which he has made of himself in creation, in providence, and in grace, in knowledge of God in his three persons, in, in his Christ and mediator, in his law, in his gospel, in the knowledge of his holy will. This knowledge of God, 
<coughs> which distinguishes the regenerate from the unregenerate, which the apostle solicited on behalf of his converts, and which is the basic element in all real Christian progress, is something vastly different from and superior to the mere possession of a correct opinion about God or any speculative view concerning him. It is a supernatural and saving knowledge. A mere theoretical knowledge of God is inoperative and ineffectual, but an experimental knowledge acquaintance with him is dynamical and transforming. You're going to see this word experimental in the Puritans very often, and Pink, of course, is an expert in the Puritans, and he, he says it often. It means an existential. That's a real knowledge. It's theoretical simply, uh, like Richard Burton, the, the actor who was a drunkard and a whoremonger, he liked to read the Bible. He, he enjoyed reading the Bible, but he didn't believe it. So it's, experiential knowledge means you actually believe it and it affects your life because you really are regenerated and converted. That means you have repented. I remember when I was first a Christian reading the Puritans and this word experimental used to throw me a little bit. It is a knowledge which deeply affects the heart, producing reverential awe. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. It is such a knowledge that strengthens the Christian's graces and calls them forth into lively exercise. Since that divine light and power is communicated to the saint by the Spirit through the Scriptures, it causes him to search and ponder them, as he never did previously, and to mix faith with what he reads and takes in. It is such a knowledge as promotes holiness in the heart and piety in the life. It is a knowledge that produces obedience to the divine commandments, as 1 John 2, 3 and 4 plainly teaches. Yet, there can be no such knowledge of God except as he is, he is apprehended through Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Such a knowledge of God lies at the foundation of everything else in the spiritual life, being both essential and introductory. Without such a knowledge of God, we cannot know ourselves, how to order our lives in, uh, in this world, nor what awaits us in the world to come, until made acquainted with him who was light. 1 John 1, 5, we are in complete darkness. Calvin evinced the profundity of the spiritual insight by commencing his renowned institutes and saying, quote, True and substantial wish primarily consist of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Without a personal spiritual knowledge of God, we cannot perceive the infinite evil of sin and the fearful havoc it has wrought in us. It is only in a sight that we see light, Psalm 36, 9, and discover the horribleness and totality of our depravity. Then it is that we both behold and feel ourselves to be just as God has described in his word. Equally so, it is only by such knowledge of God that we can appreciate the divinely provided remedy, either in discovering wherein it consists or in realizing our dire need of the same. Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is darkness. From all that has been pointed out above, we may see how completely dependent the Christian is upon God. No spiritual progress is possible except as he continues to shine upon us. Neither a powerful intellect, the artificial aid of, aids of philosophy, nor a thorough training in logic contribute one iota unto a spiritual apprehension of divine things. True, they are of use in enabling the teacher to discourse, their, to discourse thereon, to express himself more readily and fluently than the illiterate. But as to, discover, but as to discovering to him divine truth, they are of no value whatsoever. The reason that this is evident, celestial things are high above the reach of carnal reason, and therefore it can neither attain thereto or acquaintance with their own nature. And I would add, uh, I would add, uh, and Van Til taught this very effectively, if your starting point 
your axioms, as theologian, uh, as philosophers say, your axioms, your starting point, your first, your first point upon which you reason is wrong. You can have the best logic in the world, and everything you teach will be wrong. Your starting point, your axioms have to be correct. And for that, you need a true knowledge of God, a true knowledge of Christ. You need to be a believer. You need to be regenerate. Heavenly grace is required for an entrance into heavenly things. And the meanest capacity is as susceptible to heavenly grace as the most capacious mind. Moreover, things of God are addressed to faith. And that, it is a and that is a grace of which the unregenerate, as he is most accomplished servant, is utterly devoid. Divine mysteries are hidden from the naturally wise and prudent, but they are supernaturally revealed to spiritual babes, Matthew eleven twenty five, revealed by the Holy Spirit through divinely imparted faith. Just a couple more paragraphs and we'll, take, we'll stop for today. An, an uneducated Christian may not be able to enter into the subtle niceties of theological metaphysics. He may not be competent to debate the truth when ingenious objectors but he is capable of understanding the character and perfections of God, the person and the work of Christ, the mysteries and wonders of redemption, so as to obtain such a gracious view thereof as to excite in his mind a holy adoration of the Father and a love for and joy in the Redeemer. And such a knowledge, and that alone, will stand us instead in the time of trial, the hour of temptation, or the article of death. Yet it is only as the Holy Spirit is pleased to give fresh light and life to the believer's mind by bringing home a new by his own unction and efficacy, which is already known, that he can increase in the spiritual knowledge thereof. What God has revealed in his word must be applied again and again by the Spirit if it is to be operative in us and bear fruit through us. The believer is as much dependent upon God for any increase of spiritual knowledge as he was for the first reception of it. And constantly does he need to bear in mind that humbling word, without me you can do nothing. If we added nothing to the last paragraph, we would present a most unbalanced view of the point, conveying the impression that we had no responsibility in the matter. As there is a radical difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, so there is a, between our first spiritual knowledge of God and our increase in the same. But, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord is a divine exhortation, intimating both our privilege and our duty. We are required to make all diligent use of the means that God has provided, for he places no premium on slothfulness. That we are dependent upon the Spirit to apply the truth to us, yet that does not signify that it will make no difference whether or not we keep the things of God fresh in our minds by daily meditation upon them. Only God can bring His Word home to our hearts in living power. Nevertheless, we must pray. Psalm 119.25 Quicken thou me according to thy word. Moreover, it is our obligation to abstain from whatever would grieve the Spirit and thereby weaken the assurance which enables to say, My Father and my Redeemer. If we increase not in knowledge of, of God, the fault is ours. And we'll stop there. What a wonderful... I disagree with some of the stuff about the, the distinction between the spirit and the soul. But other than that, his teaching is, is excellent and, and worthy of, of note. Um, we are responsible. This justification takes place in an instant of time. It's a declaration of God the Father in the heavenly court. It's objective to the sinner. It's achieved solely by, the, the foundation of salvation is achieved solely through Jesus Christ. But sanctification is a process in which we are required to cooperate that takes place over the whole life and is never perfected in this life. It requires diligent study. It requires attending the means of grace. It requires, requires praying and working and seeking. Now, the foundation of sanctification is also Christ and his perfect salvation. 
Jesus Christ is our sanctification, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He is our sanctification. However, this is something where we are enabled to grow more and more over time, but we have to cooperate with the means that God has set before us. Does that mean we earn our redemption or salvation? No, we do not. Totally a work of Christ. But it does mean that sanctification is something which we must work hard and be diligent at, because if we don't, don't expect to grow. And if you don't grow, what happens? You stagnate, you go back. So it's very important that we apply these things. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your, uh, our beloved brother, Arthur Pink. Always, what a wonderful ministry he had. And he is still helping people today long after he died. We thank you so much for his ministry. We ask that we would learn from this and apply it to our hearts, that we would be more and more holy over time, that we would glorify your holy name, that we would exalt your holy son. And forgive us when we fall short, for we do fall short every single day. In Jesus' name. Amen.